Good morning. Today's scriptures reading is found in Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. I'll be reading from the NIV. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen say blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against the Holy Spirit and against the law. For, he, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you, Allison, for leading us in our worship music this morning. And thank you for being here. And participating in our worship time together. Thank you for those of you that are watching online this morning and participating from home or wherever you may find yourself today and uh, taking time to jump in and connect and be a part of our service. Um, <clears throat> and uh, some of you will know this and maybe others don't. It's actually pretty amazing that Pastor Jason is able to stand up here this morning because last night he was the father of the bride as well as the officiant of the wedding for his eldest daughter, Lainey. And uh, actually, you held it together really well, Jason. I mean, for being the, you have all that you had to do and being the, the dad and the whole thing. Now, I don't know, maybe when you got home last night, you totally lost it. And, you know, that would be understandable. But uh, it was just a beautiful ceremony. Some of you watched online as well. And um, it just always reminds me, and maybe it hit me especially last night, watching um, Lainey coming down the aisle, you know, just adorned, the bride adorned for her husband. And then Beth and I always, we always, we look at the bride quickly, but then we turn quick and watch the groom because to see the groom's face when he sees his bride, just amazing. And remember the Bible tells us it's a picture of Christ and the church, that we are the bride being adorned by God beautified in the righteousness of Christ for the groom, Jesus himself, and that one day we're going to be united together with him forever as the bride for the groom and the wedding supper of the Lamb. What a beautiful picture the Bible gives us, and what a beautiful picture last night to remind us of that wonderful spiritual image of Christ and his church. So um, they're, they're going to go, you know, after, like this afternoon you're leaving, right? So uh, um, Jason and Joni and the family, they're going to get some time away, have their own little family honeymoon you know, time away and, and to kind of recover and so on. So be praying for them this week. And um, also, uh, just a reminder too, don't forget to pray for, for Bert and Kim. Uh, 
uh, gave us a nice acrostic with Kim's name, K-I-M. So they leave later this week. Keep praying for them. They're gone 10 days down there in Honduras. So uh, please be part of our prayer team to pray for their ministry to Michael and Karen and Casa de Abbey while they're there. And uh, uh, we're privileged this morning, too, to have uh, Daniel and Kathleen Harrison, also some Trinity missionaries from Austria. They're back home visiting for a little while. And Joe Hale is part of our church here, and Joe is Kathleen's dad, and so family connection as well. And uh, we're going to hear a little bit more from them. Uh, I think it's next Sunday, uh, so you'll get the, a little update on their ministry and mission that God's given them and that we're part of in Austria. So uh, if you get a chance after the service, greet them, say hi to them. I know they're meeting with our missions committee this afternoon, but... I'm so glad to have you guys here. Welcome. And you've been waiting a long time to be able to travel and come back, right, to see family. So this is pretty special. Um, and it's special that we can be together, that we can come together in prayer and in, around God's Word and, and worship Him in that way. So would you join me in prayer once more, and then we'll dive into our passage today. Lord, we thank You for this time. We thank You for the privilege of being Your church, Your bride and Lord, thank you for the work you're doing on us to beautify us, to, to cleanse us, to make us prepared and ready for Jesus, the groom. And Lord, I pray that you would continue that work in us, continue transforming us and conforming us and, and, and working on us to make us more like Jesus. And Lord, I thank you that you take time and you're so patient in that process Thank you for the forgiveness that you offer to us, the grace that you show us every day, that you are at work in our lives. Thank you that you are so good to us, as we've just sung about this morning. And Lord, as we come to your word, I pray that that process would continue. This is part of it. Lord, you use your word to work on us and to work in us and to, to change us and conform us to Jesus. And so, Lord, we ask for that this morning. And I pray that you would guard my words, help me to rightly, accurately Communicate what you have for us today so that, so that your work can be done in our lives, so that your word can work on us, and so that your spirit will be at work in us. Lord, all of that is what we pray for right now as we interact with your word. Thank you for this time. Thank you for our, our fellowship together around your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was uh, September September 18th of 2007, and Carnegie Mellon professor Randy Pausch was speaking to students and colleagues as a part of a series they were doing at that university where professors were asked to do a hypothetical last lecture, meaning they were supposed to come before the students and the co their colleagues and, and tell, uh, speak what they would speak if this was their last lecture, the last time to talk. What would they say? What would be the most important words they could give? In Randy's case, he found out about a month before his scheduled speech, his last lecture speech, that the pancreatic cancer that he had was terminal and that he would only have a few months to live. So his last lecture became truly a last lecture and became famous not only as a speech that he gave to, on his campus, but became famous as a book a best-selling book that he wrote with some help from somebody else to put all those words into writing as his last lecture. One of the things, the famous quotes from that lecture in that book is this. It's not about how to achieve, to achieve your dreams. It's about how you live your life. 
This book is filled with lessons like this and statements like this, things he wanted to pass on not only to his students. He wrote this especially for his three kids, knowing that these were the last days that he could speak into their lives on this earth. So that's what's in this book. And sure enough, he did pass away that next year, 2008, at the age of 47. You know, a person's dying words can be powerful. And that's the title of our message today, Dying Words. Because even though Stephen didn't know when he gave this message maybe that it was going to be his last lecture, his last speech, it turned out to be exactly that, his dying words that still speak to us now 2,000 years later as we look at this wonderful speech in Acts chapter 7. Now, you heard the summary given we had... I asked uh, Tom to read the end of chapter 6 so that you would get the setting again. Hear this. We covered that passage last week. Pastor Jason did. But I wanted you to hear it again to be reminded because Stephen was this Hellenistic or Greek-speaking. That's what that word Hellenistic means. He was a Greek-speaking Jew, and he'd been appointed as one of the first deacons in the Jerusalem church. But the Spirit of God was also at work in him so powerfully that he, that could not contain what he did for the cause of Christ. He was speaking boldly in any opportunity he got about Jesus. And he got opposition from some other, interestingly enough, the text tells us, other Hellenistic Jews. So other Greek-speaking Jews, kind of in his camp, who were opposing him because he was speaking about Jesus. But they couldn't stand up against him, the text tells us, because the wisdom, the power of the Holy Spirit was so at work in him. So what they did is the same thing they did against Jesus, right? They, they stirred up lies against Stephen. They brought in false witnesses to say that he had blasphemed Moses and God, and they bring in these false charges. So look at this again. We'll put the passage on the screen. Acts chapter 8, verses 13 to 14. This fellow never stops speaking against his holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs handed down to us. This was their accusation. Now we come in chapter 7. What is Stephen going to do with this? So if you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, please turn to Acts chapter 7. Get to that passage if you're not there already. On your phone, electronic device, there are some Bibles under the chairs. And we really encourage you always at Trinity here to follow along in God's Word as we study it together. So here we are. Stephen is standing there before the Sanhedrin. Remember, these are the Jewish religious authorities, the 70 Pharisees and Sadducees and priests and teachers of the law. They're all there. And so you come to this point, and you would expect Stephen to defend himself against these false charges, right? The high priest even says in verse 1 of chapter 7, he asks Stephen, he says, are these charges true? And we would expect Stephen to say, uh, no, these are not true. These are false accusations. That's not what he says. It, I was reminded as we sang the hymn this morning, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And essentially, that's what Stephen does. He doesn't give an argument for himself. Instead, what does he do? He gives a summary of Jewish history. Now, I, I don't know about you, but when I was in school, history was not my favorite subject. <laughs> In fact, some people find, I know some people find it exciting, but some find it a little boring. And so there's this sense, I don't know, maybe Stephen was thinking if I just give a history lesson here, they'll all kind of fall asleep and I can just kind of slip out the back door. I don't know, but he's giving this history lesson now 
And it's not boring at all. It's exciting. It's motivating. It's moving because Stephen, by giving them their own history, is showing them that their laws and traditions and temple customs, everything had become the focus for them. And in the process, they had missed God's plan and missed God's purpose. And because of that, they missed God's son, Jesus. So Stephen addressed these accusations. He did address them about the law and the land and the temple, all the things that were part of what they said in chapter 6. But he addressed them in a way not to defend himself, not to get himself free, but to lay the groundwork for the gospel, to lay the groundwork for everything that we're going to see happening in the book of Acts. It's because of this history lesson that Stephen gives right here in Acts chapter 7. Now, the speech is 52 verses long. So if the history lesson isn't enough, the 52 verses might be enough to say, oh, my goodness, this is way too much. And it really is. It's the longest recorded speech or sermon in all the book of Acts right here in chapter 7. And so this morning, we won't be able to hit every single verse as we normally would do. I'm just going to pull out some key points that Stephen makes as he goes through. And we're going to take these as chunks of history throughout this lesson that Stephen gives. And I just want you to remember as we launch into this too that Stephen was really just a regular guy. He was what we would call today a layman. He he was not one of the apostles. He was not a pastor. He was not a missionary. He was not a designated spokesman for the church in Jerusalem. But he was filled with God's Spirit. And because of that, he was filled with God's grace and God's power, the text tells us in chapter 6. And that, by the way, is the same spirit and the same grace and the same power that is available to you and me. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you have that same spirit at work in you. So what is it that we can learn from Stephen? What do we learn from his defense of Christianity? Because that's what this is. So I'm going to break this down into four segments of Israel's history. And here's the first the patriarchs and the land. Now, that's a good place for Stephen to start, right? Because the Jews were proud of their heritage. They often talked about Father Abraham and the the land that he was promised. And so that's where Stephen starts. Abraham was called by God while he was still living in Mesopotamia. Remember, he was somewhere else. He was not in the promised land. God brought him there, called him there. He obeys, he follows, he goes But he never owned any of that land. Abraham himself never owned the land. He was a wanderer, a sojourner. He had had a tent. He would just go from place to place wherever he could pitch his tent. Look at verse 5. God gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. So here's the point Stephen's making. Abraham's faith was not in the land. His faith was not in the nation because he had neither. He had no land and there was no nation. He didn't even have his own son in his old age yet. No, Abraham's faith was in God. His faith was in the one who had given him those promises that had called him there. It wasn't centered in the land. It wasn't centered in the nation. So God continues to to move and fulfill these promises. So he gives Abraham a son 
The son is Isaac, the son of the promise. Isaac becomes father to Jacob. Jacob is father to the 12 sons, his 12 sons, who become the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So now we're getting to the nation's history here. But, but remember, this started out with a, an incredibly dysfunctional family. These 12 sons had all kinds of issues in this family, and one of the biggest that he points out is that they hated their brother, Joseph, in fact, wanted to kill him. One brother saves him from being killed, but he instead gets sold as a slave and gets carried off to Egypt. Now, what kind of family is that to build a nation on? But God had not forgotten His promises to Abraham. God is still at work. And Stephen reminds us, as Joseph went to Egypt, God brought him out of prison, made him a ruler in Egypt. He was able to save Jacob and his family because of the famine that was going on. They came to Egypt. They found food. They're given land, and the nation begins to grow. But as the generations go on, the pharaohs that come forget about Joseph and forget about those promises, and now the nation of Israel becomes slave, they become slaves in Egypt. But God had not forgotten His promises to Abraham. You see, it wasn't just about having a land or having a nation. The nation, were, they were a nation of slaves at this point, and they were far from their land. They still had no land, but God is still at work. See, the point that Stephen is making in this is that it was about pursuing and trusting God Himself. It wasn't so much about the land or the nation. It was about God who made the promises and would fulfill the promises. So here's our first lesson that goes along with this history is we need to pursue God and not just the blessing. Pursue God, not just the blessing. See, we can fall into the same trap of, of wanting God for what He can give to us or what He can do for us. We want the blessings of God but we don't always pursue God Himself. And the most important thing is Him. It's the relationship to Him. It's the same thing Jesus said. It's what He called us to. It's a journey, a relationship, a faith. Remember Jesus said this in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, whoever wants to be my disciple and must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. It's not so much about the destination. It is about the journey with Him. It's about the faith walk with Him, learning to trust God every day of our lives. That's the most important thing. You know, I'm, I'm thankful for the technology we have nowadays with GPS and, you know, the map that shows up right there on your phone. But I have to tell you, honestly, I don't always trust Siri because, you know, sometimes Siri will just go away. She just suddenly stops talking or she is late, you know, we're already almost past the turn. She says, turn right, turn right. Well, I can't turn right now. It's too late. So it gets a little frustrating. So whenever Beth and I are going somewhere, when we have to use the GPS and have Siri guiding us, I usually I have Beth drive and I'll sit in the passenger seat and I'm just going to keep an eye on her. I, I just like to keep an eye on that map, make sure it's right, make sure we're going the right direction, keep checking it because I have my doubts. Now, like last week, we were in Atlanta for something. We were coming home and, you know, punched it in, sent us home. So Siri gives us a map. And it was the, the route that was chosen on the GPS was not a typical way. It was not a way I'd remember it ever going home. All right, I'm doubtful, but we'll, we'll follow. Well, it did get us home. 
And we followed a route that took us past some areas and places and things that we'd never seen before. It was actually interesting. It was actually fun. You see, sometimes it's about the journey, not just the destination. And sometimes, even though you may not trust Siri, you can trust God to pursue Him, to follow Him. It's the pathway with Him. It's learning to trust Him all along the way in this faith journey. It's not just and only about the destination. Pursue God, not just the blessings that He gives along the way. Second part of this history lesson is Moses and the law. It's a natural place to go next, right? Stephen moves through the history and he lands on this hero of Israel, this deliverer, Moses, which, by the way, is the one that he was accused of blaspheming, right? So he is answering this accusation. He's saying, yeah, I, I know about Moses. Let me tell you about Moses. Remember, when he first was called by God to be the deliverer, he tries to do it his own way. He goes out and kills an Egyptian. He gets himself in trouble. He has to run for his life. And he thinks, I'm sure, at that point, it's all over. He goes to Midian. He becomes a shepherd. How could God possibly find him or use him there? But God does. God finds him there, and there the burning bush experience, God meets him, and he says, this is holy ground. Holy ground, it wasn't anywhere near the promised land, it wasn't where the nation was, but there, because God was there, it was holy ground. And he meets Moses, and he sends him back to Egypt, and he delivers the people from slavery, and he takes the people out on the way to the promised land. They go through the wilderness, they go to Mount Sinai, Moses goes up the mountain, and God gives him the law on the mountain. And I love the way Stephen weaves all this in because he had been accused of speaking against Moses and the law, and those are the very things he weaves into this history. He talks about Moses, and he talks about the law. And he says to them, these live, he calls the law, Stephen does, he calls them the living words that God gave to Moses on the mountain. The living words of God. Not speaking against it, speaking for it, but he reminds them, Hey, but don't forget, what did the nation do when God gave His law? Verse 39, but our ancestors refused to obey Him. Instead, they rejected Him, and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. That was the time they made an idol for themselves in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. See what Stephen's doing here? He didn't speak against the law of Moses. Jesus hadn't spoken against the law of Moses. It was the Israelites who had disregarded God and His law. They had worshipped man-made false gods instead of worshipping God, the one true God. In fact, Stephen reminded them that Moses was the one who had pointed them ahead and had said to them, verse 37, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people, which was a reference that we know to Jesus himself. Moses was the one who had said, God will send a prophet. And that prophet turned out to be Jesus, who came not to abolish the law but to fulfill the law. So here's our lesson from this part of history. Obey God, not human tradition. We're called to obey God, not the man-made ways or traditions. 
You see, the Israelites had kind of separated their action from their belief so many times. They said they believed in God. They said they trusted in God. But over and over again, they turned and worshipped idols, worshipped false gods, disobeyed God. They did not show their obedience to God. And they chose their own way, their own beliefs, their own traditions, and ignored God and His Word. You know, this... Uh, I'm sure you've seen this in the news, this collapse of this condo building in Miami, Florida. It happened a couple weeks ago. Just tragic, tragic incident. So many lives lost, so many families devastated. And, of course, they're still trying to figure out what caused this terrible collapse. There was no precipitating circumstances they could see. But as they're doing the investigation, I'm sure there's going to be more to come, more that will come out about this. But already there's finding some red, there were some red flags, there were some cracks here, there were some reports there. But nobody really paid attention. No action was taken. The warning signs may have been there, but nobody heeded them. And because of that, this great disaster took place. You see, Stephen is saying to them, you all, you religious leaders, you have built your structure of what you say you believe, what you think is right. You have your tradition, your man-made stuff. And you've missed the warning signs from God, and it's all going to collapse because you've disobeyed Him. Stephen, even in his speech, quotes from the prophet Amos to remind them that of their many times they had fallen into idolatry. Amos tells them that God's punishment is coming because of that idolatry. So here's the lesson for us. I mean, don't we, like them, must not build our lives on false assumptions that we have about how we think we can live our life or should live our life, kind of creating our own way, our own agenda, or our own man-made traditions. You know, this is what society tells me. This is what the world tells me. The world's way is not going to work. It will come collapsing down if you try to build your life on that. Or even the enemy's lies, those are the worst of all. The enemy's lies that go against God's truth that takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden where the enemy's lie moved Adam and Eve to sin. Don't build your life on anything other than the truth of God revealed in His Word because if you do, it will collapse. And it will be as devastating as that collapse of that building in Miami, Florida. Build your life on the foundation of God's Word, God's truth. Be in, live in obedience to Him. It's the only way. Stephen moves on to another section of Israel's history. Israel and the temple. Verses 44 to 50, he talks about this and. Now he comes to some more accusations against him and against Jesus about speaking against the temple. So he addresses that as he walks through the history. The Jews were proud. They were protective of their temple. And so Stephen reminds them, here's how it all started. Remember, it wasn't the temple at first. It was a tabernacle. And God gave instructions to Moses on how to build this or create this, temp, this tabernacle, which was like a mobile, a mobile building. It was, it was a tent. It went with them wherever they camped around the desert. It was kind of like their revival tent that they took with them, reminding them of the presence of God. 
And when they landed finally in the promised land, the tabernacle came with them. But then David, King David, comes along and he wants to build a more permanent place for God as a reminder to the people. He asked to build the temple and God gives that responsibility to his son Solomon. But even David and Solomon knew that a tent, a tabernacle, or even an ornate, beautiful temple could not contain the person and the presence of God. Look what Stephen says in verse 48 of our passage. The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. And Stephen quotes God's words in Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. And God says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my dwelling place be? Has not my hand made all these things? So all throughout this last lecture, Stephen has been making this very point, that you cannot contain God. If you look back, remember he said Abraham? When Abraham was called by God, it wasn't in the Promised Land. It was in Mesopotamia. Joseph, when he was carried off to Egypt, God was still there. God met him there. God worked in his life and saved him and put him in, in charge. Moses, where did he meet God? It was in Midian by a burning bush. And the Israelites, all the way through the wilderness, God was with them there. God did not need the land or the temple or the tabernacle or anything else because He cannot be contained. He is everywhere. He is at work everywhere. And this is what Stephen is doing. He's reminding them of that fact. He said, you're so focused on this temple that you missed the fact that God cannot be contained by this building. So what is the lesson for us? We need to worship God and not the structure. Now, what do we mean by structure? Well, that means the building, obviously, just like they were fixated on the temple. Sometimes we can get the sense that this is where God lives, in this building. Now, this is a beautiful building. We're thankful to God for this building that we have at Trinity Church. But this is not where God lives and stays. He is not bound by these doors and these walls. And the church itself is not bound by a building. But it's also about other kinds of structures. So, like a a religious structure of any kind, an organizational structure, a denominational structure, none of that can contain God either. God's not contained by any kind of a political structure or power structure. Don't think that that is where God lives and the only way that He works. We cannot limit God by our man-made structures. And the religious leaders had done this. See, this is what Stephen has been saying throughout. They put God in a box. So if you were watching the video that we sent out as a reminder yesterday, as Beth and I do each Saturday for the coming Sunday message, you saw us making this little God box here. And this to me was, serves really as a good visual, I think, for what Stephen is trying to say in this speech. So for the leaders of Israel, the Israelites themselves, there was a great focus on them as a people group. God is the God of the Jews. They limited Him to that. God is the God of their land. You've heard us talk about that already this morning. Stephen's talked about that. The promised land, that's where God is. That's where God works. That's how they saw it. 
Or the law. This, this is God's law. God works through this law and only through this law. Or the fourth side of our box, the temple, what we've just been talking about. This is God's temple. This is where God is. This is where God lives. This is where He works. And they had created this box and put God very neatly and nicely into this box and had Him all figured out. And Jesus didn't fit in this box. So they rejected Him. Peter, in the speeches we've already seen in the book of Acts, they didn't fit inside this box. So it was stirring up controversy already that the apostles had already been thrown into jail and flogged, as we've seen, because they didn't fit in this box. And now Stephen comes along, and he is tearing up the box. Because God cannot be contained in a box. And yet we try to do the same thing, so it's only fair if we're going to talk about how the Jewish leaders and people were falling into this, we can fall into this too. So I've just put a few things on here. There's a lot of things you could put on our God box, right? And maybe you have your own. But one of the most common is church. We think this is how God works. He works in the church and only works in the church and through the church. And so when I'm at church, that's my God time. And we limit God. To our church experience. Or maybe music. Uh, music. I experience God through music, but it's my music, the music that I like, the style that I like, the way that I like, the songs that I like. God speaks to me there, but only there, and we limit Him again. Or prayer. When I need God, I'll call Him. <laughs> that's my time. I'll pray, and that's when I speak to God, and He speaks to me, and we limit Him to our own prayer time. Now, again, let me pause here and say, all these are good things. Church and music and prayer, all part of our Christian experience and, and our worship, but they are not limitations on God. It's not the box that we can put Him in. Last one is fellowship. This is a big one. When, when I'm with my Christian friends, that's when I talk about spiritual things. That's when I can talk about Jesus and talk about my faith. But if I'm not in fellowship, if I'm not around Christians, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to let anybody know. I, my faith doesn't work there. Put God in another box. Created this box and put him in. Say, this is how he works. This is who he is. And it's just got to stay in this little box. And the mistake in that is then when we're in other contexts. So, for instance, we think, well, when I'm out on the golf course or for me on the tennis court or the pickleball court, you know, God's not really a part of that. God doesn't really care so much about that. Or, you know, when, when I'm when I'm struggling, when I'm ill and in sickness, I just have to kind of deal with that. God's not part of that. When I'm at work, you know, then I focus on work. God's not there really part of it. We missed that. We've missed the fact that God wants to be part of everything that we are and do and everywhere we are. We dare not put Him in a box. He deserves to be worshipped in every area of your life. Worship God, not the structure, not the box. There's one more area. Stephen moves on in history, the, the Israel and the prophets. And he doesn't get to say much about this, although this was a large part of Israel's history because now he gets very pointed. Look at verse 51. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed the one who predicted the coming of the righteous one. 
And now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. You see what Stephen is saying here? He says, they, they, had, they had resisted God's spirit. They would persecuted God's prophets. They had murdered God's righteous one, Jesus. And so he comes now to the culmination of this history lesson, and he says, you haven't learned from your history. You haven't learned from your past. You're still doing the same thing. Just like they'd rejected God in the wilderness and the promised land, they rejected God's Son when He came to deliver them. Just like they disobeyed the law given to them by God on the mountain, now they disregarded the one who came to fulfill that law. And just as their idolatry had led them into captivity, which Stephen doesn't even have time to really get into, now their heart idolatry was keeping them captive to sin. So the final lesson of this speech of Stephen is choose God, not self. Choose God, not self, because it's possible for us to fall into the same trap, to be stiff-necked as well, to resist the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And we can rely on ourself rather than relying on God's Spirit. And so I think it's good for us often to ask ourselves that question. Uh, who is really in charge? Who's making the calls in my life? A am I resisting God's Spirit or am I yielding to Him? That's an important question. That's a daily question. Am I choosing to listen to God or am I listening instead to my own sinful self? Whose agenda? Who? Who's calling the shots? Some of you know that I'm a tennis fan, and so this has been a big couple of weeks. Wimbledon has been going on, and today is the men's singles final this morning. Now, if you already know the results, don't say anything, because I'm going to watch this later, all right? So Novak Djokovic is playing in the final today, and maybe has already pl played, um, but not in my mind he hasn't played yet. He's going to play later. Okay, so... Anyway, he is the number one men's player in the world right now, and uh, he, uh, he's already won the Australian Open this year. He won the French Open this year. If he wins today, and wins Wimbledon, and if he wins the U.S. Open, which will be in New York in August, I think it is, and if he wins, he's also planning to play at the Olympics, and if he wins gold in the men's singles there, he will have accomplished what's called a gold, golden slam which means winning all four major tournaments and the gold medal in the same year. That's very rare. Now, be, the, being the best men's tennis player in the world, you would think, you know, he's, got, he's really got his act, to get his, at least his tennis act together, right? And you look at him on the court, and you might think he's, he, it's a solo game. He's, he's a singles player, right? But if you, when you watch tennis, they are consistently looking to a particular box. And who's in that box? It's the family. It's the coach. It's the trainer. It's his team. No player, including the best player in the world, goes it alone. He's got a team of people. And believe me, those coaches and trainers are speaking into everything in Novak Djokovic's life right now. They're speaking into his training process, into his diet and his exercise, and they're coaching him about strategy for upcoming matches. He relies on his team. Even though he is the best, he needs his team, and he chose that team. 
If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've chosen to follow him, to be a disciple of Jesus, you've been given a coach. That's the Holy Spirit. The question is, will you listen to your coach? Are you listening to him or are you resisting him, as Stephen says? See, if, if Novak Djokovic or any other tennis player, if they resist and don't listen to the advice of their coaches and trainers and those who are trying to speak into their lives, they're going to be in trouble. They will suffer the consequences of that. They are where they are. Djokovic is where he is because of the team that he has around him. If you've chosen to follow Christ, you've been given a coach. Are you listening to your coach? At this point, Stephen probably had a whole lot more to say. He could have continued with his history lesson, but his speech is abruptly ended, as we've seen a couple times already in Acts. Verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Now, this was a cultural way to express hatred and anger and loathing, but I, I, I can't even duplicate the sound. I don't really know what it sounded like. I don't know if I even want to know what it sounded like. It must have been terrible. Seventy of these religious leaders gnashing their teeth at this man all at the same time. How does Stephen respond? Verse 55. This is amazing. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, pause for a minute there because usually when we see passages that talk about Jesus in heaven at the throne of God, he is sitting at the right hand of God, right? No, Stephen sees him standing. What's the significance of that? Well, maybe this was a reminder that Jesus, his deity and his authority is standing so that Stephen can see that. Maybe. Maybe Jesus was standing showing that he was the ultimate judge and it doesn't matter what false accusations they're going to bring against Stephen, that he is standing as final judge and jury. Or maybe, maybe Jesus, Stephen sees Jesus standing because he's ready to welcome Stephen home as the first Christian martyr for his faith because that's exactly what happens next. The religious leaders rush at Stephen. They drag him out of the city. They stone him to death. Don't miss this final picture here. Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God's throne in heaven. What do the religious leaders see? They don't see that. They're seeing red. They're angry, furious. There's death in their eyes. And so they unceremoniously and illegally, by the way, put Stephen to death. And Stephen, as the stones are flying, responds like Jesus on the cross. Verse 59 and 60, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You know, when we, when we see Jesus as Stephen saw him, we can realize that we have nothing to fear either. I, I don't know if you have this same struggle I do sometimes, but when we, when we pray and we ask God to heal us or a friend or a family member or save somebody from dying or to 
get us out of a, def, a difficult situation. A lot of times the way we respond, the way we talk about it is when, when that happens, if, if someone is saved or healed or the situation is fixed, God answered that prayer. But what do we do when somebody dies? We stay sick or the difficulty doesn't, doesn't get better. Because that's what happened here. God didn't send angels down to rescue Stephen from the stones that were flying. Stephen died. So it'd be easy to look at that and say, well, where was God? God didn't answer anybody's prayers. God didn't save him. But we know where he was. He was right there. Stephen saw him. Stephen saw Jesus right there. And because he did, what we have is an answer to prayer in a completely different way than maybe we would have scripted it. But we have Stephen full of faith, full of the Spirit, forgiving his enemies, forgiving the murderers as he dies. His last words are words of forgiveness. How could he do that? Well, because he was filled with God's Spirit and because he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And in answering this prayer, what God was doing is through the death of this martyr, Stephen, God was expanding His church. God would grow His church. As we're going to see in the next chapters, that persecution moved that church out to expand and grow like it never could have otherwise. See, if we would get that perspective that Stephen had of seeing Jesus in every experience of our lives, that He is standing at the right hand of God, He is in control, He loves us, and He cares for us, then we would have nothing to fear. We would give, be able to forgive our enemies too. We would be able to live and speak boldly and clearly for God if we would just see Jesus. So what will be your last lecture? What are your dying words? What is most important to you? Is Christ alone your hope in life and in death? He was for Stephen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this passage and this uh, amazing speech, and even though we've run quickly over this history of Israel, Lord, the reality that Stephen comes to in the end is so personal and practical for us. Lord, to recognize that we need You alone, that You are in everything and want to be part of everything, that obedience to You, submission to You, following You, that's where we need to be. That's where we find life and hope and strength. It's in responding and submitting to your Holy Spirit, not resisting Him. That's where we find true meaning. And Lord, it's in seeing you in all of your glory, in your authority, standing at the right hand of God, knowing that you have overcome, knowing that you are victorious, in seeing that, recognizing that, that's how we can live in full boldness, in full faith, without fear, without worry, with boldness and courage. Lord, give us that perspective. 
Remind us over and over again, day after day, that You are our hope, our life in every situation. It's Christ alone. Christ alone. May that be our prayer. May that be reflected in our lives even as we leave this place today. And Lord, if there's anybody here this morning that does not know you personally as Savior, has never made that decision to give their life to you and to receive from you that gift of eternal life in exchange, I pray that that would be their response, that that would be their prayer today, to enter into this relationship that lasts forever. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your name that we pray this. Amen.